Hi, Dave Henry here. This is For the Record Program number 1260. How many lies before you belong to the lies, part 22. This is being recorded on September 14th of the year 2022. As always, before we begin, uh, a number of links at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post on the front page of the Spitfire List .com website. There are a number of critical links. First of all, for those of you who find podcasts to be the best way to consume for the record, sister station WFMU is podcasting for the record. There is a link again at the top of each written for the record description in the for the record category on the spitfirelist.com website and at the top of each food for thought post also on the spitfirelist.com website that will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts and increasingly in our smartphone society that is how people consume their information Another link will enable you to get the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work printed and the audio on it. Basically everything that is on the SpitfireList.com website. That is again all of my life's work printed and audio, all of the comments. And also a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy to download PDF files. There will be a new flash drive available uh, within the next few months, which will be right up to date. Again, I get no money whatsoever from this, and that flash drive is available for a minimal tax-deductible contribution. Again, a link at the top of each written food for thought post and at the top of each uh, written for the record description. Please keep up with the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor Terrafractal, some of which are made by other intelligent listeners. Uh, the link to enable you to subscribe to them is broken, but again, all you have to do is go to the SpitfireList.com website, and they are all there. And again, there is way too much going on for me to cover in a weekly one-hour broadcast, or even uh, as I'm doing this week, too. I have begun a Patreon site which features three weekly talks with machine-generated transcripts. Those three weekly talks aim at being one hour in length, but usually they run a little long. And again, I'm sure that will come as no surprise to regular listeners to find out that I talk a little bit more than uh, I planned on talking. Uh, but again, with that, you know, probably the three talks put together are closer to four hours with machine-generated transcripts. And there was also a bi-weekly Zoom Q&A talk as well. Uh, I hope to be doing Zoom Q&As with some of the authors and researchers whose work I feature on the program. That, however, uh, will be forthcoming and is still up in the air. But again, three one-hour-plus talks, usually totaling close to four hours, with machine-generated transcripts and a bi-weekly Zoom Q&A session. Now, this program is continuing uh, coverage of the war in Ukraine. It's just 
much too much going on for me, even in that one in that one seizure, so to speak, and it is literally at this point a seizure of war for me to cover. Um, I'm going to pick up, however, where we left off uh, with our last program. We were talking about uh, an enemies list which has been drawn up by the Ukrainian government with assistance from NATO and from the U.S., that is a continuation of the Moretz, uh website, which uh, basically doxes uh, anyone that the Ukrainian government considers to be an enemy, and uh, it has led to assassinations. Among the recent additions to that uh, list are Roger Waters, the founder of the famous rock group Pink Floyd, and even Henry Kissinger, which will give you some idea of the venality and extremism of the Ukrainian government. Uh, the Marotvoretz list is also associated, as we looked at in uh, discussion with Mark Ames, with the prop or not group in the U.S., although they're by no means coterminous. There does appear to be uh, an element of intersection, as Mark Ames noted. Uh, the late Robert Perry, uh, the founder and uh, uh, maven of Consortium News, was on the prop or not uh, list as you know, basically a Russian disinformation specialist. He then died of a fast-acting case of cancer not too long after that. Cancer is one of the favorite ways for the powers that be to get rid of people, so whether or not that was uh, a Murat Varep's hit is anyone's guess. Uh, the Murat Varep's list has now included... Scott Ripper. Scott Ripper is a former Marine Corps intelligence officer who was among the weapons inspectors in the first decade of this century who said that Iraq did not, in fact, have weapons of mass destruction. That turned out to be the case, and Saddam Hussein was not involved in September 11th. However, uh, the Iraq invasion proceeded on course anyway. Uh, Scott Ritter has been very critical of the Ukrainian government. He is by no means a blind ideologue, but he has reported uh, fairly and accurately about what is going on there, and he has now been added to the death list of Marat Varets, and that is what it appears to be. He expounds on that in an article that appeared in Consortium News, again, the online publication that was founded by Robert Perry from Consortium News of August 31st of 2022 by Scott Ritter. The de- it's called Scott Ritter, The Death List. The subhead uh, reads, The odious legacy of Stefan Bondera drives the suppression of those who dare challenge the narrative of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict promulgated by the Ukrainian government, its Western allies, and a compliant mainstream media. <clears throat> In May of 1986, I received orders to attend a counterterrorism awareness course at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare School in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. For the next two weeks, I learned about the various 
terrorist threats facing the United States military and was taught various skills to overcome them, such as high-speed evasive driving, counter-surveillance methodology, and reactive shooting techniques. Upon my return to 29 Palms, where I was stationed as a Marine Corps intelligence officer, I was given the task of putting my newly learned skills to work by carrying out a base-wide counterterrorism exercise. I borrowed a scout sniper team from the infantry battalion on base and set them up in an apartment off base where I turned them into a terrorist cell tasked with collecting intelligence on the senior officers who lived and worked on the base. The only rule was that the terrorists could not engage with civilians. No families were to be impacted by the drill. Over the course of the next 30 days, my terrorist team was able to, quote, assassinate, unquote, every battalion commander, the regimental commander, and the base commander using improvised explosive devices and sniper fire, and had the photographs to prove it. By the way, this was an exercise. <laughs> they didn't actually kill the, the people, but uh, the point is that they could have if this had been a real uh, combat. Continuing. The takeaway from this exercise was that if someone wanted you dead, you were probably going to die. Vigilance was your only real defense, to be alert for anything suspicious. In short, to live a life governed by paranoia. In the age of terrorism, if you feel like someone is seeking to do you harm, it is probably because someone is seeking to do you harm. The next section using those skills. Throughout my professional life, I have had occasion to use the skills I learned at Fort Bragg on several occasions. I was targeted for assassination while working as a UN weapons inspector in Iraq, and I was informed that I was the subject at a, quote, hit, unquote, put out by the Russian mafia for my role in breaking up an illicit missile component smuggling ring. I would conduct a 360-degree inspection of my vehicle before entering it, looking for signs of tampering. And I would conduct counter-surveillance drills while driving, accelerating at odd intervals to see if anyone kept pace, or rapidly exiting a highway to see if anyone followed. Today, I'm a 61-year-old writer living in the suburbs of Albany, New York. It's a quiet neighborhood where everyone knows everyone. And yet, due to recent circumstances, I once again find myself inspecting my vehicle before getting inside, keeping a watchful eye out for strange vehicles driving down my street, and conducting counter-surveillance maneuvers while driving. Why the paranoia? Simply put, my name has been added to a Ukrainian kill list. Think I'm getting too wound up? Ask the family of Daria Dugina, the 29-year-old daughter of the Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin. Both she and her father were on the same list. Both were targeted for death by an assassin suspect by the Ukrainian security services. Only a last second change of plans, which put Alexander Dugin behind the wheel of a different car, kept him from being killed in the blast that took the life of his daughter. I've been writing for some time now about the Ukrainian Center for Countering Disinformation and their publication in mid-July of a, quote, blacklist, unquote, containing the names of 72 intellectuals, journalists, 
activists, and politicians from several countries who were labeled, quote, Russian propagandists, unquote, by the Ukrainian government for having the audacity to speak critically, yet factually, about the ongoing Russian-Ukrainian conflict. I took umbrage over this list for several reasons. First, and foremost, that the salaries of the Ukrainians who compiled this list appeared to be paid by the U.S. taxpayer using funds appropriated by Congress for that very purpose. The idea of Congress passing a law which empowered the Ukrainian government to do something, suppress the First Amendment guarantees of free speech and a free press that Congress was constitutionally prohibited from doing, angered me. So, too, did the fact that the Center for Countering Disinformation announced the existence of this blacklist at a function organized by a U.S.-funded NGO and attended by State Department officials who sat mute while their Ukrainian colleagues labeled the persons on this list information terrorists, unquote, who deserve to be arrested and prosecuted as war criminals, unquote. At the time, I cautioned that the use of such inflammatory language meant that the, quote, blacklist, unquote, could be turned into a, quote, kill list, unquote, simply by having a fanatic decide to take justice into his or her own hands. Given that the U.S. government funded the creation of this list, organized the meeting where it was presented to the world, and gave an implicit stamp of approval to the list, and its accompanying labeling through the attendance of U.S. government officials, these fanatics don't have to be foreign-sourced. Plenty of people in the U.S. adhere to the same hate-filled ideology that exists in Ukraine today, which gave birth to the, quote, blacklist, unquote. Some of them are my neighbors. In June... I drove down to Bethel, New York, the site of the original Woodstock Music Festival, to participate in a Spartan Obstacle course race. To get there, I had to drive past Ellenville, a sleepy little town that is home to a camp belonging to the Ukrainian American Youth Association, which, every summer, coordinates with the Organization for the Defense of Four Freedoms of Ukraine to hold a, quote, heroes, unquote, holiday, honoring veterans of the Ukrainian people's... uh, One more time. To get there, I had to drive past Ellenville, a sleepy little town that is home to a camp belonging to the the Ukrainian American Youth Association, which every summer coordinates with the Organization for the Defense of Four Freedoms of Ukraine to hold a hero's unquote holiday, honoring veterans of the Ukrainian People's Army and the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. The camp boasts a hero's monument, unquote, consists of a 42 false beginning again. The camp boasts a hero's monument, unquote, which consists of a 42-foot tall structure with a Ukrainian trident at the top, flanked by the busts of Yevon Konavolets, Simon Petlura, Shukhevich, and Stefan Bondera. Four leading, fisk- four leading figures in the history of Ukrainian nationalism, all of whom were involved in the murders collectively of hundreds of thousands of Jews, Poles, and Russians. Let me read that one again because I bought a couple of the names. The camp boasts a hero's monument, unquote, 
which consists of a 42-foot-tall structure with a Ukrainian trident at the top, flanked by the busts of Yevon, Konovalets, Simon Petlyura, Roman Chukeviich, and Stefan Bandera, four leading figures in the history of Ukrainian nationalism, all of whom were involved in the murders collectively of hundreds of thousands of Jews, Poles, and Russians. Bombera has been elevated to the status of a national hero in Ukraine, and his birthday is considered a national holiday. That a monument to men responsible for genocidal mass murder, and who, in the case of two of them, Shukhevich and Bombera, openly collaborated with Nazi Germany, could be erected in the U.S. is disturbing. By the way, I would add that Konovalets, K-O-N-O-V-A-L-E-T, yes, also worked for the Third Reich, although he uh, was liquidated uh, before the end of the war. Continuing now, uh, let me recap of this last sentence. But a monument to men responsible for genocidal mass murder, and who, in the case of two of them, Shukhevich and Bombera, openly collaborated with Nazi Germany, could be erected in the U.S. is disturbing. But every year, Ukrainian-American adherents of this odious ideology of Stefan Bandera gather to celebrate his legacy at a children's camp, unquote, where the youth are arrayed in brown uniforms that make them look like what they are, in fact, ideological stormtroopers for a hateful neo-Nazi ideology that promotes the racial superiority of the Ukrainian people is a national abomination. One more time. But every year, Ukrainian-American adherents of the odious ideology of Stefan Bombera gathered to celebrate his legacy at a children's camp, unquote, where the youth are arrayed in brown uniforms that made them look like what they are, in fact, ideological stormtroopers for a hateful neo-Nazi ideology that promotes the racial superiority of the Ukrainian people is a national abomination. From Ellenville to Bethel, I saw evidence of this hateful reality in every blue and yellow Ukrainian flag fluttering in the wind and every red and black banner of the Bandera-worshipping Ukrainian neo-Nazi fanatics that fluttered next to them. The legacy of Stefan Bandera is at the very heart of what passes for Ukrainian nationalism today. It dominates the political arena inside Ukraine, where all competing political ideology and affiliations have been outlawed by President Volodymyr Zelensky. It is behind the suppression of all dissenting voices, foreign and domestic, that dare challenge the narrative about the Russian-Ukrainian conflict being promulgated by the Ukrainian government, its Western allies, and a compliant mainstream media. After Consortium News published my leopard for my New York congressional delegation, Senators Chuck Schumer and Kristen Gillibrand and Representative Paul Tonko, T-O-N-K-O, in which I called them out for voting for public law 117-128, appropriating $40 billion in U.S. tax money to underwrite the Ukrainian government and military, there was concerted action by others impacted by the Ukrainian blacklist, which the legislation had funded. The publicity about congressionally funded suppression of free speech appeared to be too much for those who are complicit in a frontal assault on the U.S. Constitution. The Center for Countering Disinformation's blacklist was removed from the Internet. Victory, however, was short-lived. 
Within days of the Center for Countering Disinformation's blacklist being taken down, a list published by the Ukrainian Marotvorets or Peacekeepers Center incorporated names that had been on the Center for Countering Disinformation blacklist, unquote. Cope of Marotvorets staff, oh, uh, continuing, the Marotvorets list has been in existence since 2014 and has been described as, quote, effectively a death list for politicians, journalists, entrepreneurs, and other figures who have been cleared for firing by the list's creators. Daria Dugina's name was on that list. And so, and now so is mine, along with several other Westerners, such as Canadian journalist Eva Bartlett and British rock musician Roger Waters. The Biden administration is silent about this abomination. So is Congress. According to 6 USCS 101, the term terrorism is, quote, any activity that involves an act that is dangerous to human life or potentially destructive of critical infrastructure or key resources and is a violation of the criminal laws of the U.S. or of any state or other subdivision of the United States, and appears to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, or to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping, unquote. There is little doubt that the murder of Daria Dugina was an act of terrorism perpetrated on behalf of the Ukrainian government. Her photo on the list now has the word liquidated, unquote, written diagonally across it in red. While the Ukrainians deny any such allegations, Russian authorities have assembled a convincing factual case to the contrary. The existence of the Marotvoret's death list is an instrument of terror and should be taken down at the insistence of the U.S. government. Well, I agree with his, his uh, assessment just presented there, but uh, do not hold your breath. Uh, the Ukraine war has, in my opinion, really cemented the Nazification of America, although the Republican Party has been joined at the hip with uh, what I call the underground right, basically the continuum and residua of the Third Reich since really uh, the, the tail end of World War II. The Democratic Party under Joe Biden has uh, fully aligned themselves with that. They've been moving in that direction. And I think the Nazification of America and indeed the fulfillment of the legacy of Stefan Bondera uh, could be seen as uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, when she greeted uh, the two-dimensional large video of Volodymyr Zelensky with the salute Slava Ukraini. That is now the salute of the Ukrainian military and police. It was the salute of the OUNB and its affiliated military arm, the UPA, in the Second World War. You have basically the, the Speaker of the House of Representatives uh, giving a Nazi salute, a Ukrainian Nazi salute, to Volodymyr Zelensky uh, in front of not only both houses of Congress, but basically a worldwide television audience. This is something that should uh, generate more alarm than it actually does, but uh, 
it has not to date. Uh, something that I want to note, we have covered the uh, CYM organization, the Ukrainian Youth Organization, in the past. I will include in the description for the program an article from the Kiev Post, which is a right-wing publication from July 29th of 2019. Ukrainian Youth Organization CYM Thriving in America by Askold uh, Kushaniki, K-R-U-S-H-E-L-N-Y-C-K-Y, and it notes the Bombero affiliation and the paramilitary dress and drills of this organization. That is the one that uh, Scott River was alluding to in the article that we just read. Something that we looked at in former record program number 1150, and uh, something that is worth keeping in mind, as we have looked at in this series, and as is documented in, in many aspects, many things on the SpitfireList.com website, but in the series on the Ukraine war, uh, we excerpted a paper from, or an essay basically, an article from Covert Action Quarterly number 35 called The Secret Treaty of Fort Hunt by Carl Oglesby. And in there he notes the affiliation of the Bandera organization, the OUNB, with the Galen Spy organization, and it is also discussed at length that the Galen Spy organization is essentially a front for the protection of Odessa Nazis. That assessment, by the way, comes from the late Colonel William Corson. He was a Marine Corps colonel who... Uh, it was staging, he was basically in combat in Vietnam, and when one of the Marines under his command was fatally wounded, uh, as he was dying, and uh, basically Corson was at his side, he made Corson promise that he, when he would return to America, he would let the American people know what was really going on in Vietnam, because they simply did not know. Corson kept his promise. He returned to the U.S. He resigned his commission from the Marines out of disgust over the Vietnam War, and he became the top advisor to uh, Senator Frank Church in the Church Committee in the mid-1970s that was investigating CIA misdeeds. Corson also published a book called The Armies of Ignorance, and he is quoted in an interview that Oglesby has in that essay as discussing the Galen organization as a front for the protection of Odessa Nazis. In connection with the CYM, with the OUNB Pondera Youth Organization in the U.S., as Scott Richard alluded to, uh, I want to read a segment from one of the seminal texts on the Galen organization. This is Galen, Spy of the Century, published in hardcover by Random House and authored by E. H. Cookridge, copyright 1971. And what Galen had done was to set up a number of cells in the U.S., including ethnic Ukrainians, which continued to be financed by the Galen organization. Now, this is in the U.S., Cookridge writes in Galen's Spy of the Century, Galen even set up a number of cells in the U.S. As early as 1963, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee discussed the activities of the Julius Klein Public Relations Company, which had established branches in Washington, New York, and Los Angeles, 
have also in Canada, employing a fairly numerous staff without apparently engaging on any publicity business. From this firm, the trail led to the Association of American Citizens of German Origin, which was receiving large subsidies from an unspecified federal German government department, the Bundesnachrichtendienst. It was later established. By the way, that was the Galen organization when it became the official intelligence service of the Federal Republic of Germany. It was previously part of the CIA. It became the de facto NATO intelligence organization. Finally was incorporated as the BND, the Bundesnachrichtendienst, when the Galen organization became the Federal German Intelligence Service. Continuing with what Cookard writes, this foreign subsidy amounted to the handsome sum of $280,000 in 1964 and increased in later years. Not so satisfactory at first were the explanations of Galen's connections with the large organizations of Ukrainians, Poles, Lithuanians, Latvians, and other East European immigrants in the U.S. which received finance and advice from three, quote, registered, unquote, BND agents, Roman Hemlinger, alias Dr. Grau, Victor Salomon, S-A-L-E-M-A-N-N, and Alexander Weber, W-I-E-B-E-R. Point being here that the Ukrainian youth camps were part of a Ukrainian OUNB milieu in the U.S. that was being actively funded by the Galen Organization, an extension of the Third Reich's National Security Establishment, as described by William Corson, a front for the protection of Odessa Nazis. And uh, this basically uh, highlights the continuity between the OUNB of the, of the Second World War, where the OUNB and its military wing, the UPA, collaborated with the Third Reich, and the uh, Galen slash OUNB milieu in the U.S. as well. And Scott Ritter has noted uh, the vitality that that organization has maintained in the U.S. Part of the revisionism of history that is being uh, disseminated is that Reinhard Ge- uh, excuse me, not Reinhard Ge- but that Stefan Bandera was an opponent of the Third Reich. There were divisions within the overall Nazi hierarchy and some of the affiliated Eastern European fascist organizations at times uh, ran afoul of other elements within the Third Reich, in particular the uh, more ideological, Nordic-oriented SS, when the OUNB, which collaborated enthusiastically with the Third Reich, not only with their invasion, but with the liquidations of various groups in Ukraine, Jews in particular, uh, when the OUNB and UPA declared their independence, Even though they were allied with the Nazis, they declared that they would be an independent state. That ran afoul of the Third Reich hierarchy or elements thereof. So Stefan Bombera and Yaroslav Spetsko, the head of state of uh, Ukraine during the war, uh, basically were interned. However, they were not (laughs) put in concentration camps. They were physically 
put in those camps, but they enjoyed a very privileged status. They were later released, and their forces continued the collaboration with the Third Reich throughout the war and became a key element of the Galen organization, as we have seen. From Covert Action Magazine, an article by Evan Reif, R-E-I-F, published on June 9th of 2022, how pre-World War II Ukrainian fascists pioneered brutal terror techniques, later improved by CIA, now ironically taught to descendants. And this alludes to exactly what uh, Scott River was uh, citing. Of the, quote, internment, unquote, of Stefan Bondera in a concentration camp, several months after the Declaration of Independence by Ukraine, which the Nazis did not accept, Tensions would rise to such an extent that the Nazis arrested Bandera, Spetsko, and other leaders. After a period of house arrest, they were transferred to Sachsenhausen concentration camp in 1943. Bandera's stay was not typical, however. Bandera had a two-room suite with paintings and rugs, was allowed to have conjugal visits with his wife, performed no forced labor, wore no uniform, was exempt from roll call, ate with the guards, and did not lock his cell door at night. The Nazis released Bandera in 1944 after a meeting with Alice Skorzeny, Hitler's top commando, to carry out a campaign of terrorism against the advancing Red Army. The Nazis could have killed Bandera and Stetsko at any time in the interim, but they did not. Rather, they made a great and successful effort to recruit them. Again, the conditions were not exactly typical of uh, concentration camp inmates in World War II. Bombera had a two-room suite with paintings and rugs, was allowed to have conjugal visits with his wife, performed no forced labor, wore no uniform, was exempt from roll call, ate with the guards, and did not lock his cell door at night. Well, uh, that, I think, speaks for itself. Uh, we are going to once again present information that was developed by Jacques Beau. That's J-A-C-Q-U-E-S, last name B-A-U-D. He is a colonel in the Swiss Intelligence Service and is superbly credentialed. He was in charge of intelligence gathering and analysis on the Warsaw Pact forces and the Soviet Union for the Swiss intelligence service during the Cold War, and he was deeply involved with Ukraine as well following the Maidan coup and has abundant first-hand knowledge of what took place in Ukraine uh, prior to and following the Maidan coup, and we have accessed his uh, information in the past. In a number of different programs, I have uh, presented his credentials, and I will uh, present those in the written description for this program as well. However, I think in the interests of time, I'm, uh, I'm not going to bother reading these. Now, once again, this interview was presented in the Postal Magazine, that's P-O-S-T-I-L. I want to give a caveat about that. It is not a publication I think a whole lot of. A number of the books that they promote I would classify as fascist. So a huge caveat about the postal. That having been said, uh, 
by presenting the information by Jacques Beau, and they put a number of very valuable interviews with Jacques Beau uh, into the public realm. They have done a tremendous service, and I think we owe them a debt of gratitude, considerable debt of gratitude. The Postal Magazine of September 1st, of 2022, has another interview with Jacques Beau. Uh, appropriately enough, our latest interview with Jacques Beau. And Beau talks about a number of things in this uh, interview, including the uh, some of the situations vis-a-vis the Ukraine war that we just are not hearing about. So from the interview, uh, and again, the Postal uh, asked him a number of different questions. What should we make of the explosion at the Saki Air Base in Crimea, Jacques Beau? I do not know the details of the current security situation in Crimea. We know that before February, there were cells of volunteer fighters of Pravi sector and neo-Nazi militia in Crimea ready to carry out terrorist-type attacks. Have these cells been neutralized? I don't know, but one can assume so since there is apparently very little sabotage activity in Crimea. Having said that, let us not forget that Ukrainians and Russians have lived together for many decades, and there are certainly pro-Kiev individuals in the areas taken by the Russians. It is therefore realistic to think that there could be sleeper cells in these areas. More likely, it is a campaign conducted by the Ukrainian Security Service, or SPU, in the territories occupied by the Russian-speaking coalition. This is a terrorist campaign targeting pro-Russian Ukrainian personalities and individuals. It follows major changes in the leadership of the SPU in Kiev and in the regions including Lvov and Ternopol since July. It is probably in the context of this same campaign that Darya Dugina was assassinated on August 21st. The objective of this new campaign could be to convey the illusion that there is an ongoing resistance in the areas taken by the Russians and thus revive Western aid, which is starting to fatigue. Uh, by the way, one of the things that is noted by Jacques Beau here is that uh, Daria Dugina was assassinated roughly a week after giving an interview to the Postal Magazine. Continuing. These sabotage activities do not really have an operational impact and seem more related to a psychological operation. It may be that these are actions like the one on Snake Island at the beginning of May, intended to demonstrate to the international public that Ukraine is acting. What the incidents in Crimea indirectly show is that the popular resistance claimed by the West in February does not exist. It is most likely the action of Ukrainian and Western, probably British, clandestine operatives. Beyond the tactical actions, this shows the inability of the Ukrainians to activate a significant resistance movement in the areas seized by the Russian-speaking coalition. The Postal then asked, Zelensky has famously said, Crimea is Ukrainian and we will never give it up. In this rhetoric, is this rhetoric, or is there a plan to attack Crimea? 
Are they Ukrainian operatives inside Crimea? Jacques Beau. First of all, Zelensky changes his opinion very often. In March of 2022, he made a proposal to Russia stating that he was ready to discuss a recognition of Russian sovereignty over the peninsula. It was upon the intervention of the European Union and Boris Johnson on April 2nd and on April 9th that he withdrew his proposal despite Russia's favorable interest. It is necessary to recall some historical facts. The cession of Crimea to Ukraine in 1954 was never formally validated by the parliaments of the USSR, Russia, and Ukraine during the communist era. Moreover, the Crimean people agreed to be subject to the authority of Moscow and no longer of Kiev as early as January of 1991. This is important, and by the way, in a uh, previous interview with the Postal on August 1st of this year, uh, Bo goes into that history at great length, and this is something which is simply unknown in the West. Uh, one more time. Moreover, the Crimean people agreed to be subject to the authority of Moscow and no longer of Kiev as early as January of 1991. In other words, Crimea was independent from Kiev even before Ukraine became independent from Moscow in December of 1991. In July, Alexei Reznikov, the Ukrainian Minister of Defense, spoke loudly of a major counteroffensive on Kherson involving one million men to restore Ukraine's territorial integrity. In reality, Ukraine has not managed to gather the troops, armor, and air cover needed for this far-fetched offensive. By the way, this is out of September 1st. There were two offensive, one in Kherson and one in the Kharkov area. Uh, time permitting at the end, I'll talk a little bit about those, but we'll see how that goes. Sabotage actions in Crimea may be a substitute for this counteroffensive. They seem to be more of a communication exercise than a real military action. These actions seem to be aimed rather at reassuring Western countries which are questioning the relevance of their unconditional support to Ukraine. Would you tell us about the situation around the Zaporizhia nuclear facility? In Enogadar, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, or ZNPP, has been the target of several attacks by artillery, which Ukrainian and Russians attribute, which, one more time, in Enogadar, at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, or ZNPP, has been the target of several attacks by artillery, which Ukrainians and Russians attribute to the opposing side. What we know is that the Russian coalition forces have occupied the ZNPP site since the beginning of March. The objective at the time was to secure the ZNPP quickly in order to prevent it from being caught up in the fighting and thus avoid a nuclear incident. The Ukrainian personnel who were in charge of it have remained on site and continued to work under the supervision, under the supervision of the Ukrainian company Energoatom and the Ukrainian Nuclear Safety Agency, SNRIU. Therefore, there is therefore no fighting around the plant. Uh, I, I love the, the, the wit he uses here, but relatively subtle for these days. Uh, it, it's in the passage that follows. 
It is hard to see why the Russians would shell a nuclear power plant that is under their control. This allegation is even more peculiar since the Ukrainians themselves state that there are Russian troops in the premises of the site. According to a French, quote, expert, unquote, the Russians will repack the power plant they control to cut off the electricity flowing to Ukraine. Not only would there be simpler ways to cut off the electricity, beginning again, not only would there be simpler ways to cut off the electricity to Ukraine, a switch, perhaps, but Russia has not stopped the electricity supply to the Ukrainians since March. Moreover, I remind you that Russia has not stopped the flow of natural gas to Ukraine and has continued to pay Ukraine the transit fees for gas to Europe. It is Zelensky who decided to shut down the Soyuz pipeline in May. Obviously, uh, and recently there have been changes in both of those. Uh, following the uh, Kharkov offensive, uh, Russia did attack a number of uh, electricity-generating facilities in Ukraine, blacking out a fair amount of the country. And uh, the natural gas flow to Western Europe has uh, slowed to virtually nothing, although uh, Putin has offered to open the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, in our last program, we took a look at uh, indications that provoking the Russians into a military move in Ukraine, which was done, uh, was in order in considerable measure to rationalize the cutting off of Western Europe to Russian gas and the interdiction of the uh, uh, starting up of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Continuing. Moreover, it should be remembered that the Russians have been an area where the population is generally favorable to them, and it is hard to understand why they would do... One more time. Moreover, it should be remembered that the Russians are in an area where the population is generally favorable to them, and it is hard to understand why they would take the risk of the nuclear contamination of the region. In reality, the Ukrainians have more credible motives than the Russians that may explain such attacks against the ZNPP, which are not mutually exclusive. An alternative to the big counteroffensive on Kursen, which they are not able to implement, by the way, they did implement it, it was a disaster, and to prevent the planned referendums in the region. Further, Zelensky's calls for demilitarizing the area of the power plant and even returning it to Ukraine would be a political and operational success for him. One might even imagine that they seek to deliberately provoke a nuclear incident in order to create a no-man's land, unquote, and thus render the area unusable for the Russians. By bombing the plant, Ukraine could also be trying to pressure the West to intervene in the conflict under the pretext that Russia is seeking to disconnect the plant from the Ukrainian power grid before the fall. This suicidal behavior, as stated by U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, would be in line with the war waged by Ukraine since 2014. And again, bearing in mind uh, Bo's uh, expertise as an intelligence officer, note the following. There is strong evidence that the attacks on Emilgadar are Ukrainian. The fragments of projectiles fired at the site from the other side of the Dnieper are of Western origin. It seems that they come from British brimstone missiles, which are precision missiles whose use is monitored by the British. 
Apparently, the West is aware that the Ukrainian attacks on the ZNPP might explain why Ukraine is not very supportive of an international commission of inquiry and why Western countries are putting unrealistic conditions for sending investigators from the IAEA, an agency that has not shown much integrity so far. Last couple of sentences again. The fragments of projectiles fired at the site from the other side of the Dnieper are of Western origin. It seems that they come from British brimstone missiles, which are precision missiles whose use is monitored by the British. Apparently, the West is aware of the Ukrainian attacks on the ZNPP. This might explain why Ukraine is not very supportive of the of an international commission of inquiry and why Western countries are putting unrealistic conditions for sending investigators from the IAEA, an agency that has not shown much integrity so far. And uh, Bo also notes, skipping down, in October of 2021, the Pandora Papers showed that Ukraine and Zelensky were the most corrupt in Europe and practiced tax evasion on a large scale. Interestingly, these documents were apparently published with the help of an American intelligence agency, and Vladimir Putin is not mentioned. More precisely, the documents mention individuals associated with him who are said to have links with undisclosed assets, which could belong to a woman who was believed to have had a child with Putin. Yet when our media are reporting on these documents, they routinely put a picture of Vladimir Putin, but not of Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, that is an, an interesting uh, consideration here. Uh, something to, to keep in mind in terms of the ongoing rhetoric. Uh, still more from Jacques Bo's discussion here. On March 16th of 2022, a journalist on TV channel Ukraine 24 referred to the Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann and called for the massacre of Russian-speaking children. On March 21st, the military doctor Gennady Bruzhenko declared on the same channel that he had ordered his doctors to castrate Russian prisoners of war. On social networks, these statements quickly became propaganda for the Russians, and the two Ukrainians apologized for having said so, but not for the substance. Ukrainian crimes were beginning to be revealed on social networks, and on March 27th, Zelensky feared that this would jeopardize Western support. This was followed rather opportunely by the Bucha massacre on April 3rd, the circumstances of which remain clear. At the beginning again, uh, misread that. Last few sentences. On social networks, these statements quickly became propaganda for the Russians and the two Ukrainians apologized for having said so, but not for the substance. Ukrainian crimes were beginning to be revealed on social networks, and on March 27th, Zelensky feared that this would jeopardize Western support. This was followed rather opportunely by the Bucha massacre on April 3rd, the circumstances of which remain unclear. Britain, which then had the chairmanship of the UN Security Council, refused three times 
the Russian request to set up an international commission of inquiry into the crimes of Bucha. Ukrainian socialist NP Ilya Kiva, I-L-Y-A, last name K-I-V-A, revealed on Telegram that the Bucha tragedy was planned by the British MI6 Special Services and implemented by the SBU, i.e. the Intelligence Service of Ukraine. One more time. Britain, which had the chairmanship of the UN Security Council, refused three times the Russian request to set up an international commission of inquiry into the crimes of Bucha. Ukrainian socialist MP Ilya Kiva revealed on Telegram that the Bucha tragedy was planned by the British MI6 Special Services and implemented by the SBU. The fundamental problem is that the Ukrainians have replaced the operational art with brutality. Since 2014, in order to fight the autonomists, the Ukrainian government has never tried to apply strategies based on hearts and minds, which the British used in the 1950s and 1960s in Southeast Asia, which were much less brutal, but much more effective and longer-lasting. He had preferred to conduct an anti-terrorist operation in the Donbass and to use the same strategies as the Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan. Fighting terrorists offers all kinds of brutality. It is the lack of a holistic approach to the conflict that led to the failure of the West in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Mali. Counterinsurgency operation requires a more sophisticated and holistic approach. But NATO is incapable of developing such strategies as I have seen firsthand in Afghanistan. The war in Donbass has been brutal for eight years and has resulted in the death of 10,000 Ukrainian citizens plus 4,000 Ukrainian military personnel. By comparison, in 30 years, the conflict in Northern Ireland resulted in 3,700 deaths. To justify this brutality, the Ukrainians had to invent the myth of a Russian intervention in Donbass. The problem is that the philosophy of the new Maidan leaders was to have a racially pure Ukraine. In other words, the unity of the Ukrainian people was not to be achieved through the integration of communities, but through the exclusion of communities of inferior races, unquote. An idea that would no doubt have pleased the grandfathers of Ursula von der Leyen and Christian Friedland. Christian Friedland, by the way, is the foreign secretary of Canada. Uh, her grandfather was an active OUNB uh, UPA fascist. Continuing, this explains why Ukrainians have little empathy for the country's Russian, Magyar, and Romanian-speaking minorities. This, in turn, explains why Hungary and Romania do not want their territories to be used for the supply of arms to Ukraine. This is why shooting at their own citizens to intimidate them is not a problem for the Ukrainians. This explains the spraying of thousands of PFM-1 butterfly anti-personnel mines, which look like toys on the Russian-speaking city of Donetsk in July of 2022. This type of mine is used by a defender, not an attacker, in its main area of operation. Moreover, in this area, the Donbass militants are fighting, quote, at home, unquote, with populations they know personally. I think that war crimes have been committed on both sides, but that the media coverage has been very different. 
Our media have reported exclusively about Khan's true or false attributed to Russia. On the other hand, they have been extremely silent about Ukrainian Khan's. We do not know the whole truth about the Bucha massacre, but the available evidence supports the hypothesis that Ukraine staged the event to cover up its own crimes. By keeping these crimes quiet, our media have been complicit with them and have created a sense of impunity that has encouraged the Ukrainians to commit further crimes. Then the Postal asked, Latvia wants the West, America, to designate Russia a, ter- Russia a terrorist state, unquote. What do you make of this? Does this mean that the war is actually over and Russia has won? Jacques Beau. The Estonian and Latvian demands are in response to Zelensky's call to designate Russia as a terrorist state. Interestingly, they come at the same time a Ukrainian terrorist campaign is being unleashed in Crimea, the occupied zone of Ukraine, and the rest of Russian territory. It is also interesting that, you, that Estonia was apparently complicit in the attack on Daria Dugina in August of 2022. It seems that Ukrainians communicate in a mirror image of the crimes they commit or the problems they have in order to hide them. For example, in late May of 2022, at the Avastol surrender in Mariupol, should neo-Nazi fighters, they began to allege that there are non-Nazis, that there are neo-Nazis in the Russian army. This last sentence again. For example, in late May of 2022, as the Avastol surrender in Mariupol showed neo-Nazi fighters, they began to allege that there are neo-Nazis in the Russian army. In August of 2022, when Kiev was carrying out actions of a terrorist nature against the Energodar power plant in Crimea, and on Russian territory, Zelensky called for Russia to be considered a terrorist state. Well, that obviously is uh, of not only interesting, but at, at fundamental variance of what we hear in the uh, U.S. Uh, we are almost out of time, so I'm not going to uh, be able to go into analysis or discussion of the recent uh, offenses in both Kherson and in the Kharkov region. Again, I'm doing three warm-hour, usually uh, warm-hour-plus talks a week with machine transcripts. I'm going to go into those offenses and, indeed, the marketing of the war in Ukraine. It is really uh, getting to the point where uh, Meta, you know, which used to be Facebook and is now basically a virtual reality company, is sort of sounding the theme for reality not only in America but an awful lot of the world as well. How the Kherson and uh, Kharkov offensive fit into that and the marketing of those in the West is something I will discuss uh, in the Patreon talks, who knows time permitting, in a future broadcast here, but we will see in any event, this concludes for the record program number twelve sixty. How many lies can you? How many lies before you belong to the lies? Part twenty two, being recorded on September fourteenth of the year twenty twenty two. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.